How Can I Help is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. What would you do if you saw someone sleeping rough? I walk to and from work and I see the same rough sleeper every day and I feel as if there's nothing that I can do. I'm more than happy to like buy them a drink or buy them some food. I think that's a better way to help them than maybe giving them money. I feel like usually most of the time I probably just like walk past. Um, sometimes I'll give money, but that's pretty rare. It's probably just be like based on how I'm feeling on the day, which is kind of pretty grim. From Pro Bono News, this is How Can I Help? A podcast for people who want to help but don't know where to start. I'm Wendy Williams, the editor of Pro Bono News. Each week, I'll speak to someone who knows firsthand what it's like to live through different issues. I'll also talk to the experts, the people working on the front lines, about what you and I can do to help. This podcast is not going to solve the world's problems, but it might just give some of us the tools we need to help make the world a better place. A warning before we begin. This episode contains discussions of homelessness and rough sleeping that some people may find triggering. Picture this. You're on your way to work and you see a person sleeping rough. Maybe it's cold or starting to rain and you think to yourself, I wish there was something I could do. But you don't know what. Is it wrong to give people money? What will they do with it? Does it matter? Should I offer them food? Am I imposing? Is it dangerous? How can I help? Several years ago, I wrote an article for Pro Bono News, the number one news outlet for Australia's social economy, about what you can do if you see someone sleeping rough. The article is one of our most read. I realised that just like me, there were a lot of people who really wanted to help, but quite simply didn't know where to start. That's what this podcast is about. Learning from those who have lived or worked through these issues about what we can do. And I thought it fitting to start this series by revisiting the question of how we can help when we see someone sleeping rough. While it's just the tip of the iceberg, rough sleeping is the most visible form of homelessness and the most precarious. On census night in 2016, more than 116,000 people were estimated to be homeless in Australia. Around 8,200 of them, or 7%, were rough sleepers. In this episode, we speak with Akimi about his experience of sleeping rough on the streets of Melbourne and George Hatvani, the manager of Functional Zero at Launch Housing. Ten years ago, Akimi was working for a mental health fellowship in Adelaide when his mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. A colleague had a staph infection which made it too risky for Akimi to visit his mother while he was working there in case he passed on the infection. He was left to choose between seeing his mother or keeping his job. He chose his mum. He packed his bags, left his apartment and headed to Melbourne. But without a job or permanent address and struggling with a growing addiction to synthetic cannabis, he ended up living in a squat with a group of artists who used the place as their studio. This marked the beginning of a period that saw Akimi move through increasingly unstable living situations, including six months on the streets. But yeah, I was in that squat for two years. Um, 
you could call it the Hilton of homelessness in that <laughs> I did steal solar cells and car batteries to set up a little bit of an electrical system. So I had three hours of electricity every night. But while my friends did call it the Hilton of homelessness, you know, negative four degree nights when you've got no roof or walls, kind of hectic. Yeah. There was also the issues too of when you get home, you don't know if you've got a home. Uh, someone could have trashed everything you owned. The landlord might have moved in and locked it up. The police might be there. It might be burnt to the ground. A lot of sort of anxiety around that. I also live with bipolar too, so that made managing my illness a lot more difficult. Yeah. When I left the squat, as I say, that was two years, uh, I started living in an art studio on a House of Bricks on Bud Street. The other people sharing the studio didn't want me living there and made that almost impossible by becoming very aggressive about the hours they kept. So instead of coming in during the day, they'd come in at 2am and turn on all the lights and crank the music. That led to me having to hit the bricks. So I was living on the street. Um, that was a really wild time. That was six months. All the money I had was going towards synthetic uh, drugs. Yeah. And yeah, a really rough time. Uh, you know, I learned a fair bit about it then too. I sort of isolated myself from other homeless people, so I didn't have the connection or a buddy to look after me or look out for me. Yeah. So I had situations like there was one night uh, I was sleeping in an alleyway and five upwardly mobile, well-dressed young men decided to piss all over me. Oh, God. Uh, another night, a uh, similar area, the aggressive apartment owner who was two floors above where I was sleeping with his doors and windows closed because it was winter, came down with a saucepan full of white hot water, threw the saucepan full of hot water all over me. Uh, obviously, Is that, that common, that kind of aggression yeah, towards yeah, people yeah, experience? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we don't necessarily look the best and present well and people take that as a threatening thing. That level of aggression was something else, though, um, you know, because first I got the burns from the hot water and then my clothes were soaked and it was 2 a.m., very cold winter, so my clothes suddenly became very cold very fast and I didn't have a change of clothes. I managed to keep a laptop, which kept me connected with people and allowed me to pretend to my family that I wasn't homeless. They never knew and never will know I was homeless. You know, I was treated as something less than human. Look, Akimi, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I really, really appreciate your being so honest with me and telling me your story. And I have to say, I have so many questions. I find that just seems absolutely terrifying and something that I think a lot of people just have no grasp of what it's really like. You mentioned at one point that, you know, not only were you not getting help, but people were being like actively aggressive towards you. Like the public were very antisocial towards you. I mean, can you describe a little bit about what it's like for you in that position when other people walking past you are being so awful? Uh, it, it's interesting. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a TV series called Hannibal and it's got a great line in it. It says it's along the lines of, uh, your brother in dehumanising you has dehumanised himself. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm very clever. I'm not sure if I'm smart or else I wouldn't have ended up in these situations, but I'm clever. And I realised that when people were treating me like that, it said more about them than it said about me. Yeah. So I didn't suffer much dehumanisation as a result of it. Um, I was always very 
conscious of my sort of core self that existed irrespective of my circumstances and appearance. Yeah. Uh, I've been very fortunate in that, in that core self has been, and as I say, it is good fortune, built up by a good family, good, uh, a strong sense of ego, not necessarily self-esteem, uh, <laughs> but that sort of preserved me. You see some pretty horrible things from people when you're in that situation. And, you know, I understand it to an extent in that it's terrifying to think that a normal person could end up in those circumstances. So to end up in those circumstances, you have to be somehow less than normal or less human. Uh, that's the assessment people make. If they don't make that assessment, they have to accept that this could happen to them at any second too, which is terrifying. <laughs> well, I think it's very gracious of you to say that you understand it, but I think from what we've been talking about, I mean, the reality is it really could happen to anybody in your situation. It was, you know, you lost your job, you moved to Melbourne. And do you think that's something enough people don't understand is that, for want of a better word, people sleeping on the streets are very normal? They understand it on an academic level. Oh, no, that's the wrong word, academic. Um, they understand it on an intellectual level. You know how sometimes you'll have an epiphany about a word yeah. and you suddenly understand that word much more deeply? Uh, it's the same thing. That knowledge, like knowledge is cool, it gets into your head and you go, yeah, I know this thing. But the profound understanding is missing. Um it's very difficult for people to get that too because there is that sense of separateness from homeless people. When we walk past homeless people on the street, we feel separate from them. Uh, and with that separateness, you can't really understand the perspective. It's sort of um, part of the, the byproduct of a shallow sense of empathy that we all possess. You know, academically, we can relate to people in different circumstances, but it's that profoundness uh, that's missing, that sudden shock to the system of going, wow, that's where it's at and it could happen to me. Well, I guess that leads me into my next question. I think I was saying at the beginning, the point of this podcast really is to empower people that, that do want to make a difference. So how can people who genuinely want to help go about helping? What could have helped you in that moment? So what would have helped me best uh, was someone making a connection. So someone's saying, hey, here's this person. I'm going to look out for them. And, you know, that, that's the first step. The second step, and this is a great one-stop spot for all the connections you need to help someone who's homeless, is a website called Ask Easy. Yeah. Um, that will provide you with financial, housing, food, clothing, medical all kinds of support connections that are really helpful. So you've got that personal connection with the person who's homeless and you can't necessarily help everyone. But, it, you know, I think it's cool to take one person under your wing a bit and say, okay, how can I help this one person? And if everyone helped one person, we'd have no homelessness. <laughs> it's just the maths of it. But once you've got that human connection and you find out what that person needs, and it has to be a non-judgmental connection too. Uh, Billy Connolly said something really cool about homeless people once. Uh, someone saw him give a pound coin to someone who's homeless and they said, oh, they're only going to spend it on drugs. And Billy said, well, what do you think I'm going to spend it on? Um, <laughs> but when I do give people money and someone says, oh, well, you know, they're only going to spend that on drugs, it's like, well, number one, 
that might be the comfort they need for tonight. And number two, they're human. They should be able to make their own financial decisions. It shouldn't be up to me how they spend that money. Um, it really doesn't help though being high. Being high doesn't make you smarter, but it makes you more comfortable in that moment. You've got to get away from that long term. Um, for me, eventually I got off drugs completely. But one of the other great things too is organisations like Launch. So if you, uh, as I say to people, 68 Oxford Street, that's a really good place to start in your journey back to housing. Um, Launch for me has provided a lot of help with the housing situation. Where I am now, I regard it as a fairly permanent home. I'll move out of here eventually, but it get, it's let me get my feet under me. Uh, it's let me plan a sort of career path. But the other part is too, that support has to be ongoing. So if you find someone who's homeless and you help them into housing, don't ditch them. Stay yeah. their friend. Uh, because in places like this, and I tell this to young bucks who move in here, uh, you've got a choice. You can, uh, most people who come in here want to get clean, want to get their life together, want to get back on their feet. That's not going to happen if you socialise. If you socialise with the other tenants in a building like this, your habit will get worse or you'll develop a new habit. And that's pretty brutal because there's not many people who want to socialise with those of us who live here. So if you build that connection, keep that connection because it's a connection to a world beyond crisis accommodation and supported accommodation, which is hard to forge and hard to find. Uh, so that connection is really important. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And can I ask, when you're talking about making that connection, obviously when you, for example, if you know you're on your way to work and you walk, you know, you walk past someone, is there a right way to start that, to ask if someone needs help? Do you have any words of advice for how you could kind of start a connection from, from nothing? If it is someone that you see every day and you walk past and you do want to help, is it just as simple as going up and asking them if they're okay? Well, I mean, hello is a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, hi, I'm Jerry. What's your name? Yeah, uh, that's a really good place to start. But if you see the person every day, slightly build that relationship. Yeah, it, it, They're a neighbour. They're in your community, you see them every day, you probably see them more than your neighbour. Build that relationship, buy them a sandwich, a cup of coffee, you know, bottle of Coke, bottle of water, fruit, fruit, yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, the times people would, you know those little tubs of soup, fruit salad you get at the supermarket with watermelon and cantaloupe? Man, when people would buy me that stuff, that was ace. Oh, it's like natural sugars. Yeah, it's awesome. But things like that, and you know, I've had people sit down with me and chat to me, and you know, I see it a bit in the city. There's a few people that I see will sit down every day and spend some time talking to the person they're helping out. You know, and that makes a big difference too. You know, you, if you're sitting out there on the street begging for money, you'll see maybe twenty thousand people in a day, and if you're lucky, one says hello. I mean, can you imagine that as a sense of isolation? <laughs> it's horrifying. Just to flip it out of interest, because I think one of the things that sometimes holds people back is, is fear of getting it wrong or kind of making a mistake. Were there times when someone approached you when you didn't want it? Um, I mean, there was only one time someone filmed me for Instagram so they gave me a sandwich, you know, those little boxes of sandwiches you get at the supermarket, gave me one of those and filmed themselves and, you know, wanted me to give them a high five and stuff. 
but that felt pretty icky. Yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, as I say, uh, just be genuine. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other part is too. Uh, there's that Shakespeare quote. Uh, this too often has proved true. Uh, with devotions, visage and pious words, we do sugarcoat over the devil himself. Uh, so that sort of virtue signalling is really insidious and nasty. It puts the person who's giving in a higher position than the person who's receiving and it saints that person while it treats the other person as a pauper, a beggar, nothing more. And, you know, that, that's gross. Um, the other part is to don't bring religion into it. Um, it's really, really, I mean, everyone I know that's been homeless has had a Bible at some point in time, but it's really, really hard to believe in a benevolent God when you're scrounging for sandwiches in a dumpster. And can I ask you one thing, Akimi, and I I don't know, you don't have to talk about this if there's something you don't want to, but you mentioned earlier about your family and said that they don't know that you were homeless at any point and that you've never spoken to them about that. Can I ask why you've kept that from them? Because uh, mum, after she got through breast cancer, so I didn't want to tell them while she was going through breast cancer because that would be an extra stress. After she got bre- uh, well from breast cancer, she was diagnosed with uh, stage four gastric cancer. So uh, mum is sort of the priority for me at present. Part of uh, my relationship with my mother is I want her to feel that she's done everything she can everything's okay and my life is moving forward. Um, That's probably the only gift I can give her. As Akimi's experience shows, sleeping rough is incredibly hard. Sometimes the best way to help is by forming a genuine connection. But it's possible a lack of understanding is holding many people back. An enduring myth about homelessness is that people choose to be homeless In fact, a survey by Melbourne-based housing and homelessness organisation, Launch Housing, showed 25% of people agreed or strongly agreed with the statement that many people choose to be homeless. George Hatvani, the functional zero manager at Launch Housing, believes this could mean people have less empathy for those they see sleeping rough. My fear is objectification. I think that's that's the real danger, that um, you create this othering um, and you do see it in the media, um, references to people that are dehumanising. And so I fear that if people don't understand, there is that danger of objectification. And that I think that manifests in people ignoring people on the street or um, choosing to vote for particular policies or, um, you know, or behaving in, in, in disrespectful ways. And then sharing that with their children or with their neighbours and influencing other people, I find that disturbing and distressing. And would you mind sharing what are some of the main causes of homelessness, just to kind of put it in perspective and see where people are getting confused? So what we do know is that the cost of housing in Australia is amongst the most expensive in the world. We know that there are um, policies that support investors entering the housing market, which means that the gap, but it's difficult for people to get into the housing market to begin with. So you need to have good employment, you need to have good references, you need to have saved up a very large deposit. Um, So that's hard. 
Then there's the private rental market. And COVID has meant that Melbourne is now one of the most affordable private rental markets in the country, but only because of lockdown. Um, and really the difference between what a person can afford and their wage is what determines whether it's affordable or not. And what we've got in, in Melbourne at the moment or in Australia is that income support payments are nowhere near enough for people to be able to afford private rental on their own. A single male, for example, and on JobSeeker simply cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment anywhere in Victoria. There are almost no, like Anglicare did a recent survey and there was like, in the whole of Victoria, it was like 1%. It's just unaffordable, which means that people are forced to share with other people. That's the only way that they can afford to get into the private rental market or they're forced to go into what we call, I call the substandard accommodation um, market, which is rooming houses, caravan parks, um, motels, hotels, which are sometimes you can do that for the short term, but there are things like pubs where they've got rooms. That's where people are being forced to. So they can't afford to buy. People who, who have, you know, who are in middle income or low income can't afford to buy. People who are middle and low income are then forced into the private rental market where it takes up a fair bit of their income, but they can survive, you know, 40, 50% of their income, but they can survive. If they have a, an emergency that happens, if they have a health emergency or if, or if there's something going on with a partner loses income or there's a death or something happens, then their ability to service that rent and all of their other expenses in their lives um, is compromised. And so they are close to that edge and if they don't have the social resources around them, the family, which always is that support, you know, mum and dad, uncles, aunts, nephews, if they don't have that, then they're in serious danger of falling into homelessness if they experience that crisis. And we talk about those as critical life events. The death of a partner, the loss of a job, significant illness, they're the things that can push someone who is already on low income in precarious accommodation over the edge. Then there are things like um, rental laws where the, the real estate agent can evict someone relatively quickly um, and then they're forced to try to find new accommodation. As you pointed to, homelessness is a much bigger issue than just rough sleeping. But for the purposes of this podcast, it's we really want to empower people who are perhaps seeing people sleeping rough on the streets and maybe don't really know the best way to help. It's something that is very visible in our society. What is your advice on the ways that people can help? Yeah, it's a complex one because people are so different. There are so many different experiences. The first part is connection and trying to overcome that marginalisation and objectification. And that that might just be as much as just looking someone in the eyes and not looking away and not averting your eyes. Sometimes we're intimidated by a person who is yelling or screaming or doing things on the street. And if you don't feel safe, then obviously don't do that. But sometimes, most times, just looking someone in the eye and just a smile or just... I don't know, a connection. I think that's important to people because um, it is the, the, the people that I talk to and the people I've worked with speak about feeling left out 
of being on the margins of society, of being ignored, of feeling like a failure, of having the same hopes and aspirations and just not seeing where they can get there. And a connection to another human being, I think, is just critical. Then beyond that, um, it depends on what you feel like you can do in that moment. Sometimes on the street I'll see someone and my son, sometimes with my son, he, he gets distressed when he sees people on the street and sometimes I've got money. So what we've taken to doing is I've taken to giving him the money and he'll go over and give it to someone. Um, and, you know, you, you can do that if you want. Um, uh, you can provide food if you want. Um, you can just sit down and talk to someone if you feel safe doing that, if you feel like you want to do that. Um Bearing in mind that it is that person may not want you to do that. That put you're invading that person's space. That person just happens to be in a public space. You know, as an assertive outreach worker, there are many things we do to manage our our use of space, and some of those are making ourselves smaller in comparison to the other person, noticing the distance between us, not getting into the person's space, not overwhelming them paying attention to the cues of that person. If that person is looking away, if that person is not willing to engage with you, then respecting that. Um, And if you're seeing the signs of potential violence or aggression towards you, then back off, stay away. You're getting into their space, respect that. I'd love to just pick up on that actually, George, because I do think that's surprisingly common and something you hear a lot, particularly around that issue of should you give other people money and you hear so often like well I don't want to give them money because I don't know how they're going to spend it and we actually spoke to Akimi before who said you know they might spend it on whatever they want and that might be drugs but really that's their choice and it's not necessarily up to you and I think there's a, a certainly a lot to be said for that but do you think money is the right way to go are there concerns about giving out money I'm in the, I'm in the choice camp you know you know what you need I don't know what you need so there's this, you know, paternalism here that I, I think you need to eat right now or I, I think you need to do this or I think you need to do that, but I'm not in that person's shoes. I don't know their circumstances unless I'm spending a couple of hours really engaging with that person and finding out their life circumstances. And even then, that's I don't know. So I never give money on it on a conditional basis. You chose. I hope I hope that you get a really decent meal out of it and it gives you some pleasure and joy. And if that's a, a bottle of port, you know, so be it. One question I, I would have, and this is um something that I, I hear actually from friends that sometimes, you know, actually many of us don't carry cash anymore. We're all kind of on card or even on phone and, you know, you're not always able to give something and you see people and you smile and you acknowledge them, but you can kind of feel a bit guilty that you've made that eye contact and made that connection, but then continue to walk past and live the rest of your life. I mean, is it okay to not help? I've done it. I don't know that I felt okay about it. It's suffering. I, I don't know that I ever feel okay about it. We all get, we all develop our coping mechanisms for putting that stuff aside. Um, I don't know whether it's okay. And what can people do if they want to engage in the broader issue of homelessness? Politics is everything. So the, the decisions we make at the ballot box ultimately flow through into funding and in policy. So that's where the biggest impact people can have is who do you vote for and what are their policies? 
So number one, if you're interested in homelessness, get interested in housing policy, get interested in income support policy, pay attention to what the different parties are saying and vote because of that. And if you haven't voted because of that, then you've made a decision that that's not as important as something else. You have to live with that decision. That's the choice you make. So I think choice is there. That's where the choice really is. At an individual level, you make those individual choices about what you are prepared to do and what is safe for you to do um, and how you can contribute to your local community. Is that Do you want to be part of something of that local community and do you want to do that positively? Do you feel safe enough to do that? If you don't want to do it with people on the street, maybe you might want to volunteer. There's plenty of agencies that have volunteers, Sacred Heart Mission, Launch Housing. There are lots of um, community groups like Rotary and people like that are involved um, and you can get involved through them by pushing homelessness as an issue and asking them to be more involved. You can get involved in your local political parties. There's lots of ways for individuals to get involved in homelessness. You just need to prioritise it. You need to think that it's important. If it's important, then you'll do something about it. If it's not important to you, then that's it. It's not. (laughs) George believes that homelessness is solvable. But as he says, it's up to us to prioritise it. There are many ways to engage in the broader issues of homelessness. But if we bring it back to what you can do if you see someone sleeping rough, the important thing to remember is to have empathy. It could happen to any of us. Make a connection without judgment. If you have the capacity and desire to do so, by all means, give money, but do it without restrictions. Offer food or drink or have a chat, but remember to be respectful of a person's space. If you want to point someone in the direction of services, Ask Izzy is a great resource. Visit askizzy.org.au. For more information about launch housing, visit launchhousing.org.au. And if you're interested in ending homelessness, visit the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness website at aaeh.org.au. How Can I Help is written and produced by me, Wendy Williams, with sound editing from Stefan Johnson and additional support from Maggie Coggan, Luke Michael and Nikki Stefanoff. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe and share it with your friends. If this has inspired you, or you have a story about a time when you've helped someone or failed to, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us by emailing news at probonoaustralia.com.au. And remember, you can visit probonoaustralia.com.au for all the latest news from across the social economy.